Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> I put him on 1.5, it's still not fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> you get it through Hoopla or Audible? Uh, Libby, actually. It's a library app. You found it on Libby? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, wait. Overdrive. Uh, sure, I, I have the Hoopla version, so if anyone's looking for it. The Hoopla had two or three, it's an audio one, so we got multiple, multiple print ebook versions, so. I was actually reading this before we started reading it, so I didn't swipe it from anyone. I had it before we even brought it up. All right. Yeah, let's do it. All right, so um, this is our intro into G.K. Chesterton, old Gilbert Keith. Um, you can see why a lot of people went with their you know, initials. Clive Staples, Gilbert Keith. It's like their parents hated them or something, right? Clive sounds cool. I like Clive Owen. Clive Staples? Dude. He, he, uh, he hated it so much he called himself Jack. So. <laughs> Me, Jack, so. After the dog. So. Alright, this is Everlasting Man, one of Lewis's. He said it's the most influential book. That he's that that was uh, the most influential book on him was Everlasting Man. So I actually, after reading Lewis for about a decade, decided I probably should read the book that inspired him. So read read Fantasties, which was George MacDonald, and then Everlasting Man, which is G.K. Chesterton. So <laughs> my voice is still a little uh, a little shaky. So I probably won't talk as much tonight as per usual. But what are some, uh, let's go with, what are some uh, notable differences? What are some things that you, um, that stood out to you about his style, the way he writes? Do you find it engaging? Do you find it boring? Uh, differences between Tolkien and, and Lewis and all that? I've only gotten through his intro so far. But I already noticed one thing that Madeline Lengel brought out in her book, Walking on Water, mm-hmm. how with each war we've lost language and stuff. Mm-hmm. The length of his sentences, how complicated uh, they are, all the clauses and such, it's so far from the five to ten word sentences that mm-hmm. I wrote for the newspaper. It's not, it's not Hemingway. It's, uh, <laughs> just, um, I, I truly was born out of, out of time. <laughs> because my sentences are, you know, like three or four lines, and there's, you know, semicolons and, and colons and clauses and really? parentheticals, you know, in, in there. And I just got a lot to say in that one sentence. I got to get it all in that one sentence. Uh, it's very, uh, yes, I love that about him. That's one of the things that I, I'm like, yes, I get it. I totally get it. Can't but I can see why times my friends and my friends and family have said, "Stop making your sentences so long." 
drives me crazy. For what, long sentences? Yes. That, 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 no, that they, they try to edit me. Oh, yeah. Down. Like, uh-uh. Stop it. I don't, don't cut down my sentences. <laughs> I can't not do that either. The war was hard, but it was no, a good not. war. There were many good men who died. <laughs> These men were noble. That's <laughs> like that's what him like reading Hemingway's like. It's like that. He, it's very good, but it's like, pop, it's like punchy, punchy. I, I like the fluidity and 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 the risks taken when you combine all these long things and the you carve out a great intellectual space with a longer sentence. That, that's just me. That's that's my own prejudice. The thing is, you can't read it quickly. No, <laughs> you gotta stop and go back and say, okay, now what did he just? Say there? Well, I think it goes to show the importance. Like when you look at him, you look at Lewis, you look at Tolkien, even people like. Churchill, some of the language in here reminded me of the way that Churchill would write and speak and stuff like that too. All of them had some very, very, very solid literary training and most of them moved in that direction. And nowadays, the way that we talk about like people writing books, it's like you write out of your specialty and they're like, well, we can assume you can write. We'll assume if you know your specialty, therefore you can write. And that's not, I don't think that that's the way it used to be. Like, if you were an expert in a special field, then you were there for, you were allowed to write a book, you know? Now, it was like, you had to have this as your background. You had to have grammar, you had to have language, linguistics, even other languages under your belt. And then whatever you were an expert in, because you had to, communication was first mm-hmm. key, not knowledge, you know? Mm-hmm. Everyone should know a little, uh, yeah. Little Greek and Latin. Yeah. Nowadays, watch my video. Not read my paper. Not read my book. Watch my video. Watch my TikTok. Yep. Watch my Instagram. Which watch takes zero videos. intelligence. <laughs> yeah. Zero skill. But one of the things, like they talk about with Churchill, is like he was extremely passionate about the usage, the artistic usage of language, and so when you see, yes, he was a great politician and necessary for his time, but it wasn't just the decisions that he was making, it was how he, how he communicated those decisions and how he could actually like, mobilize people and mobilize ideas and I think that's what's missing in a lot of our culture is the ability to mobilize ideas through yes. language. We just throw out the idea as if it's got, it's got feet of its own. And half of that, and that's not true. So rhetoric is just a massively lost art. Like, you, we don't teach rhetoric anymore. No, no, we don't. I think that's very... I mean, Jordan Peterson talks about if you can read and write and speak, you are extremely <coughs> dangerous. You're dangerous no. because you can create and you can transmit ideas. Right? I'm just listening to the third in that series. There's a, and there's a guy who's classically trained in communications and knows how to transmit an idea and has a movement because he can, he knows how to articulate an idea and people are like, oh yeah, I get that, I understand, I know what you're saying. But here's the thing that we've been, we've been taught in the last decade that, well, no one wants to hear this, nobody wants the truth, nobody wants, you have 10 seconds to grab their attention or for seven seconds to grab their attention. And here's the thing. Do you know who the most downloaded person in the world, in the history of humanity, who is? And he has a billion downloads a year? 
Joe Rogan. How long were his podcasts? Three hours. Three hours. <laughs> he could say billion downloads a year, and he has a three-hour podcast. You go. Anything. <laughs> everything. He talks about everything like he knows everything. <laughs> That's fair. But he does. He brings experts on. And he does. And then, but the thing is, he has it's a long format, and so here's the thing: I can I can hoodwink you on an idea for for two minutes or three minutes or even fifteen minutes or thirty minutes on a podcast. If I don't know how to communicate, and I'm on a three hour podcast, man, I am sunk because you're gonna find out that I'm a fraud if I don't know how to communicate. But if I can communicate for three hours solidly. And like, if you listen to, uh, to to Peterson's podcast, you'll, you'll find out like, he has on the Old Testament lectures. There's 16 lectures. They're two and a half hours long a piece. They're chunky. And you just go, and he's he, you know he's 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 governing himself. He's not pushing the pedal down that. He's like he has he, he can go deeper. He can go further. And so, um, these people that we're reading, they know something. They have us. I talk about they have earned wisdom. And so when they say something, you're like, man, I, it seems like it's important. Maybe I should know that. Like when Churchill says something, why, why when he says something is, is it better than when someone else says it? Like, he knows how to, he, he has a, he has a, he, he has mastered the skill of, of Brock Green, said rhetoric. And it is law. So any, anything else anybody picked up from just the, just the, your overall introduction, if this is your first time reading him? Or your, your, your feelings towards the I gotta the say I I'm a hundred percent on board with getting better at rhetoric mm -hmm. but I'm not a hundred percent on board with making needless points over and over again mm -hmm. which is what I felt like he did for the first ten percent of the law um, and I was on board with his argument after art he didn't need to do anything else and then he went on for 30 more pages. Mm -hmm. and, and I get it, and I know he's trying to cut off all the corners and cut off all the avenues of escape. <clears throat> but he goes on, he cuts off too many corners that weren't necessary for me. So I got a drug on a little bit. And, but he's, he's intelligent, and it doesn't mean that he's like wrong or anything. It's just like, man, after 30 pages, of, like, I was like, all right, man, you're at the meat. Let's go, let's go. And then he's just back on, not back on to <laughs> defeating more arguments that somebody else had at some point. Um, who else spells his way? He's Oh man, I, I struggled so much. Yeah. Struggled. Yeah. yeah. I forgot why I didn't finish it the first time, and then I was like, oh yeah, that's why. But uh, yeah. But I also will say, um, his his language and the language of Lewis and Tolkien is akin to great film and cinema. Um, because yes, fit, fit, making a YouTube video is easy, but making making art and long form content mm -hmm. and, and video that people are going to actually pay attention to and that there's symbolic meaning in is way harder. Um, and it's like most people just can't. Um, and uh, so I love, I love to see when he writes. I love to see it and I'm like, okay, I hear him, I'm like, all right, I want to do that in image, mm -hmm. which is possible. It just takes a lot of work, um, arguably more. But um, it's, it's fascinating when he gets into the stuff about 
about art in particular. That whole thing, I, as soon as he started going through that, I was like, man, I got a movie right there. All right. Mm. I was ready to go. Mm. But I don't have the budget, so. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he's sort of the, there, there's a couple ways you can do you can do uh, teaching or, or anything like that. It's, there's the linear method where you're going from point A to point B to point C. You're going linear direction. Then there's the flower method, where you you have a point, you make it, and you circle back around, you come back to the point, you circle back around, you come back to the point. I wanted to pull my hair out reading that because I was like, yeah, I'm like you, you had me. Man is an artist. Yes. Point proven. Thank you. Proven. <laughs> what else you got? Yeah. Oh, you get the same thing for the next 30. Oh, man. His shorter essays are not like that. Yeah. They're much, oh, they're much And that's why I think that, that it didn't bother me, actually, because I think that what he's trying to do is craft, like you said, long form, right? Yeah. There's, oh, a, yeah. there's long form yeah. art, and I think that requires patience. There's a bit in which he's like, he's playing with language through this. Yeah. Oh, God. I was just saying, like, He's playing through language, playing with ideas, and honestly, playing with patience as well. I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. If you can, if you can back up and appreciate it for that, yeah, and just be like, I'm going to read the next same, same thing over and over and over again on a reason, rational rationality level, but I can appreciate the ways that he's constructing something different. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I can get that. Lewis can it's get just, like that too. He can. But he does it less. Like he, yeah, he, he does, does it like one, two, long. three. Rule yeah. of three is route. Yeah. Chesterton's like one, two, three, four, five, six. I'm like he's he's gotten up to like twelve sometimes, <laughs> and and I, I'm and I'm and I'm just kind of like okay. He is cutting the avenues of escape off. Like there's 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 no once he's done with it, it's like it's it's oh, exhausting. Oh no, yeah, it's done. Like you can't really <laughs> get around him. At least for the, what they had at the time. <clears> yeah. You know. Like he's addressing, you can tell he's addressing contemporary for him yeah. ideology, and so he just takes them one, just shoots them off the rails, which is yeah. It, and I think too, reading this when it came out would have been made me more engaged in that process because yes. I would have seen the things that he's referring to, mm -hmm. you know, in literature. A couple of times he makes allusions to like popular films with the cavemen, and I'm like. Dude, like you wrote this in the twenties. There's like five films <laughs> that much that were even like going around at the time. And I'm trying to figure out what the heck he's talking about. Like I even done a little looking up. I can't find it. Do you know what he's talking about? Did, did uh, he mention films specifically? He mentioned like he mentioned films. Yeah, he mentioned uh, like films and but more popular art and like cartoons and things like that. And then like I'm guessing in like uh, tabloids or something, but. Mm. Yeah, it was, it was. I was like, "What are you talking about?" But I'm curious because I know it's. I I know he's got to be referring to something. But I don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah, Oh, just it's it's kind of been said. It's it's like, but I think that part of what he's doing is is he being like deliberately obtuse. I mean, it's obviously part of his. Yeah. It's part of his part of what he's doing. You know, is to say I'm gonna. I'm not only I'm not, not going to only go and pretend that this is a far off planet. We don't even know what it is. It's a is it a it's a star. It's like so he's he's like taking it way way extreme zoom out and then then doing all that other stuff. Lots of crop, lot lot of cross hatching, lot of a lot of shading, a lot of oh yeah, you know a lot of stuff. 
I mean, it's it's a work of art. Yeah, yeah. that's the, the whole the whole chapter on Man in the Cave is an absolute work of art. You can see why it affected Lewis so much. And so let let's pull on that thread for just a second. Who is Lewis's tutor? Remember, Kirkpatrick. William T. Kirkpatrick. He was known as the Great Knock, right? So for those of you who aren't familiar, the story is Lewis is 15. He goes to to be tutored by the Great Knock in Surrey. Gets off the train. And he says to William Tinker Patrick, um, uh, in making small talk, right? He's, he's thinking, I'm going to be this charming kind of guy. And he says, the, the Surrey landscape is much wilder than I'd imagine. And Kirkpatrick stopped him and says, what do you know about this, the, the, the Surrey uh, flora and fauna? What do you know about it? Did you study it? Do you, do you know what to expect? He's like, I have no idea. He's like, what right do you have to make an opinion? If you don't know anything about it, why make an opinion? And for Lewis, he said, it hit me. And he goes, it's like red beef and strong beer to me. And he goes, I couldn't get enough. So when he comes across me like Chesterton, <clears throat> who deliberately goes and says, there's no escape here, there's no escape here, there's no escape here, there's no... Lewis is probably just soaking this in and going, my gosh, look at what you can do. Look at, look at the... Look at the end. If you have reason and imagination, look at the avenues in which you can plumb the depths of this. And still come out with, with this this happy truth. And so I think that might be one of the reasons why Lewis enjoyed Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Boy, Chesterton so much. There's another characteristic of Chesterton that I love that you see a little bit in Lewis. I don't think you see it in Tolkien at all, but you see it a little bit in Lewis. But I, it's what I love Chesterton for, and I... Um, it's, it's the cheeky humor. Guy is not afraid to rip somebody. And intentionally looking and just go, like he's, you know, he's ribbing and he's, he's not afraid to poke the bear. Um, and you see Lewis do that occasionally, but very slight. And I don't think Tolkien does it all. You can correct me right on that. I don't think Tolkien ever really comes out and calls anybody out necessarily. In, in kind of the in kind of the the, the satirical and, and the humorous got, way that yeah he's got a couple but, does he? Yeah, okay but not like this uh, Chesterton is a master at just silly quirky witty sayings and I think that's part of like part of what what's attractive to him is again the utilization of language as an art mm. he's also like humor should be artistic too right yeah. I don't think he he, he would have been crazy about slapstick humor, right? Or crude or whatever humor. It was like sophisticated humor, you know? Yes, yes. Because his stuff, he's so cheeky. And I love, 
if you if you ever get a chance, read What's Wrong with the World. That's another short book of his or Tremendous Trifles. I am. You have those? No, I just mean that's what he says. He says I am. Oh yes. Yeah. What's wrong with the world? I am. That's it. <laughs> yeah. So the, somebody wrote a letter. The editor wrote a letter. Someone wrote a letter. Said what's wrong with the world? And so Chesterton wrote in and they printed a letter and he wrote two words: I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> and you just go. That's that's the kind of just. I mean, Rapier. What he just was so good <laughs> at. Guys, this these are masters of language communication. <clears throat> this is why we read them because. This is the best of the best that, that, that we've been able to produce. And what's interesting today, we have this notion that all these guys need to be deconstructed down to um, uh, literary devices or culture, these kind of things. And the critique of, the, there, I've heard one critique on why we, uh, this came from Roger uh, Scruton. He said he thinks one of the reasons why people um, deconstruct literature like Lewis and Shakespeare and all that is because they can't write it themselves and it's the only way for them to elevate themselves is to is to you know uh, to, to denigrate the great literature and say look they're this look at all these things that they did and so they're the only the sum of their parts um, whereas Lewis and those guys would say no 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 we're the sum of the sum uh, and, it's, and it's very different so yeah they, this is this is masterful which, I, which actually that's interesting because that's part of what he deals with in the in the in his introduction to this book is that whole where is the proper place of critique in yes criticism. and I think it's I think it's interesting the word deconstruction is obviously a big word right now but that kept coming back and back to me in this introduction where he's saying hey the the next best thing to, you know, being outside of something is to be inside of something to deconstruct it, not right next to it. Mm. You know? That is, so. a, that is a beautiful point. Where he talks about, um, yeah, so you, like, the boy in the fort, the boy in the, in the, the, the village, when he gets outside the village, looks for the giants, mm -hmm. and he gets, he gets out there and looks back, and they, actually he was, his village was a part of the giants, but he was too close to see it. And so that's a very cool concept that actually um, uh, Michael Ward brings this up in Planet Narnia. And some people will say, like, where, where is, a lot of times, where is God or where is church in Lewis's fiction? And Michael Ward said, well, if we go by Lewis's idea of atmosphere, right, where there's an atmosphere in the book that sucks you in, and you shouldn't be aware of it, it's because that God is ubiquitous, and therefore it seems as if God's silent because nothing exists without God in that. And so there's a, there's a, uh, a complete and total ubiquitous form of God, um, or it doesn't exist, those are the two options. And so I think what he's saying is like, if you're in, if you're inside of it, because it, it doesn't say, Randy, that you, the, best, uh, the best critique you can give of Christianity is to be is to be uh, inside just enough and outside just enough. Like is there's like there's a balance. Was, this is all. This kind of ties to both your points right here. I've got it. This part that's similar to that. But with this, we should come to the final vital point. I try to sh I shall shall try to show in these pages that when we do make this imaginative effort, uh, 
to see the whole thing. Oh, whoops. Sorry. Wrong quote. Back, going back up. <laughs> it, is the, it is the contention of these pages that while the best judge of Christianity is a Christian, the next best judge would be something more like a Confucian. Yes. Yes. The worst yeah. judge of all is the man now most ready with his judgments, the ill-educated Christian turning gradually into the ill-tempered agnostic mm -hmm. entangled in the end of a feud of which he never understood anything <laughs> in the beginning, glided with a sort of her uh, hereditary boredom with, with he knows not what and already weary of hearing what he has never heard. Gosh. Yeah, that's <laughs> I mean, it's like, the more I come to study Christianity, the more humbled I am by what I don't know. Mm. And so, it, so like, that's, it's awesome, it's, it's crazy, because for me, it's the exact opposite experience, so I'm like, oh, wow, that makes it even feel more true than, you know, like, than he was going on about, but it's, that was, yeah, I thought that really cut right to the heart of, of what he was getting at. Yeah. Mm. I just thought one thing was interesting in, in this. I like this in the part where he talks about the, the best book that he, he never wrote was the best book he wrote. And, and that where he's talking about that whole scene of the, the boy and, and the, the grave of the giant and that you couldn't see it until you were far away is Lewis basically put that into the silver chair where yeah. mm -hmm. where they they like fell into the actual letters yep. and yes. so it's like i thought that was pretty cool a little homage there that, that he probably gave to chesterton that idea yeah i think that's uh and again you see if someone influences you should see that influence and it should be almost effortless to to pull out those illusions throughout that and you you see that a lot in uh you're gonna see a lot of chesterton actually I hate to say it, but some of Lewis's best quotes were were rephrased Chesterton quotes, mm -hmm. and so Lewis just said it just slightly different enough to get to make it his own. But you'll go back the one about uh, I don't believe in I don't believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, not because mm -hmm. I see, but because I, I see everything, I see everything by else by it. Yeah. That's a Chesterton quote that he just repackaged. Yeah. Mm. Oh, which just goes to show you, boys and girls, that if you can repackage things, yes. I'll be the next C.S. Lewis. Jeez. Kidding. Kidding. So, um, how about we start then with uh, some of the ideas in chapter one? Because there's a, there's a ton, the man, the man in the cave. Um, just overall reactions. Um, the man in the cave, uh, professors and prehistoric men. What, what are your feelings? Uh, I'll make one point yep. that he's not talking because I think it could be really easy to look back on this. He's not talking about evolutionary science, no. right? Here, which I think <coughs> people could take that and be like, "Oh, he's espousing creationism or something like that." Here, and that's not what he's saying. That's not. It's no, he's saying he's not talking about physicality. Go ahead. No? Or who, who's, sorry, well, go ahead. yeah. There's a lot I took from some of his ideas, because I've been wrestling a bit with these, talking a lot with Cody and I, our roommates, um, and part of this was kind of a rebuke for me that, I, that was good to hear, because I've been kind of wrestling with those, the prehistoric ideas, and it was good to hear some clarification from him that it's prehistory, you know, we don't have any historical, much historically reliable mm. data in which to infer things, and so a lot of it is inference or interpolation or whatever with the data we have, but it's slim at best, and I kind of really appreciated that. 
um, mentioned Peterson, and uh, he talks a lot about nowadays with the collapse of like categories, like a culture is a hierarchy of categories, yes. and what we're seeing is a collapse of the categories themselves. And I don't remember if it was in the first or second chapter, but he talked about, Chesterton talked about, um, it's like looking up into the, you know, looking at stellar bodies or something or other and kind of getting the proportions out of a lot, uh, at the degree kind mm -hmm. of off. And he's talking about man is very different than the beast in terms of proportion or scale or whatever degree. And in some sense, it's almost irrelevant whether it, I, I say that lightly, but whether it's a creation, a young earth creationist kind of world, or if it's an ev a theistic evolutionist world, because in either case, you end up with man, um, historic man, yeah. being uh, in a totally separate uh, category. Yes. And, and that was really helpful to me because it Very helped good. kind of like reconcile, okay, like, you know, the, the Christian worldview is plausible kind of yeah. through either lens. So yeah. anyway. I loved that too. I thought the same exact thing as I was reading it. I was like, this is interesting because either either point you take, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The man is, man is the yeah. miracle regardless. And that, that's why I brought up the Peterson, the categories thing, because I didn't, obviously none of us lived back during this time, but evolutionary theory, like when it came on the scene, it kind of rapidly deconstructed a lot of people's views and things. And as a result of that, the categories fell down because they're like, well, man is just beast, man is animal, man is species, there's not a distinction. And I really appreciated that he had the courage to kind of, I don't know, he's not, you're reading this, you don't really know if he's young, what his view necessarily is, other than he's establishing the this common sense that there is a cat, there is a matter of degree and category here that in any um, cre creation uh, theology you would hold, the category still holds. I thought that was great. Right, now what he does here, this, this is, for those of you who know me, you're going to roll your eyes. What he does here is he does a very Sherlockian thing. Okay? Oh, I, only roll your, I only roll my eyes when you do... When you, well, I guess I do this too, but also when you do Peterson, I, I, keep, I keep a count on my hands. And so oh, far no, here... No, no, I, need a, I need a glass hey, of bourbon to take, take shots here. That, that's, that's fine. That's fine. I'm, I'm cool with that. Um, so there's a very Sherlockian uh, axiom here, and it's you have to understand what the vital clues are and what the incidental clues are. And so what Jesterton is saying is that the that that the scientists have taken an incident uh, an incidental clue, the thigh bone, and they've inferred upon it this great imaginative yeah. thing. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, the actual evidence we have are cave paintings based on different pers perspectival art. Yeah. That's the evidence we have of actual man doing something, and you're taking a thigh bone, which has man's not doing anything. There's there's no evidence that that that's not a, a that's not something that we can look back and historically say, oh man had a hand in doing this or right. some kind of evidence. It's just oh here's a thigh bone. Oh man was savage. And that's where it goes about the tool, right? They turned it into their tool. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so so it's the whole thing of categories of it's called. Uh, Priority of information. Yeah. So you have to have the right clues, you have the right clues in the right order to come to the right conclusion. He's just going back and saying, What do we know about what do we know about man? The only thing you really know about prehistoric man was he was an artist. And I was like, holy, that makes so much yeah, more sense. Right. And he was a creator from the beginning. Yeah. And you go, Oh, that that throws a whole new light onto this. Yeah. But he's not arguing evolution or not evolution, he's not arguing from a scientific perspective, he's arguing from 
what evidence do we have so we can start to make an inference? And the evidence we have is perspective painting. Right. And you go, oh, that's Yeah, I like that line. Brilliant. I like that line where he says right. something to the effect of nobody's surprised at the primitive man being able to draw a monkey. Mm. All of us would would seriously doubt the idea of the most intelligent monkey being able to draw a man. Although we can't get monkeys to play uh, mind pong. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone's seen the neural link, the neural, uh, Elon Musk, they put a... Yeah, yeah, yeah but who hooked him up? The monkey. Yeah, the monkey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, a good, that's a good quote from that. Right yeah. It's, uh, yeah, so fa fantastic um, way for him to, to bring it up. And uh, it's a good reminder just to, you know, to, to when you're working in a particular field as well, not to not to venture beyond your own lane. You yeah, know, oh, absolutely, yeah. Can, which yeah. I think all of us feel the temptation to do that. And you know. And it should be noted that his main qualm here, I feel like it got I feel like it gets lost sometimes and he circles back around to it. He actually mentions this in later chapters. He's like his main qualm here is not with scientists because they're not generally not the ones that are making the claim. His main qualm is with is with sensationalists mm -hmm. who come along and then interpret the data that the scientists brought out, mm -hmm. and um, he calls them journalists. But mm -hmm. just just a historical background here: at the time that Chesterton grew up, he grew up in the era of what was called yellow journalism. Yeah. Yellow journalism is the way we consider tabloid journalism today. It actually became tabloid journalism mm -hmm. after the after the twenties, after this, and after the Spanish American War, uh, war because that whole we started a world of the newspaper thing. I don't know if you guys know about that, but that's pretty crazy. Um, um, and so he's like talking to them about that. But yeah, he's like, I, I was like, I was interested because I, because I finally started hearing him say that later in later chapters. I was like, oh, okay. So he's, because he never really talks about the scientists. And I was like, who's he talking about? He talks about them a lot. They, and then, then like he starts to, starts to bring it full round. Like, oh, he's talking about these like sensationalists. He's, these these tabloid rags basically that that are at the time are way more popular than they are now. Is anyone familiar with the H. G. Wells book that he was kind of writing in response to the Time Machine? Yeah. Uh, no. Well, the one the one that was mentioned at least in my introduction was the H. G. Wells the Outline of History, which he said like pointedly dismissed Christianity. And so I was just I feel like having some context for that book would kind of give you context for what he's writing here a little bit, but I. Yeah, I, I, I've not read that. Um, but it does seem that H.G. Uh, Wells did sort of come from a uh, naturalistic framework. I mean, especially, you know, time machine is, is not, the only word I have for it right now would be, um, it's, it's based Fantastic. in... Fantastic. That is good. No, I'm saying the, the underlying, no, it was a great book. I enjoyed Just it. Saying. Uh, he's a great writer, but the the whole premise is based on um, what we would probably consider critical theory, or power, uh, everything is based on power hierarchies. They're the haves and have With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. 
Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And, and it's, a, it's a complete circular uh, uh, when the haves have something to have not to have to overthrow them, and it's, it's circular. And so that's the society that he sees, and so I'm guessing that probably underlines a little bit of his philosophy. He's probably more of a naturalist than, than not. I'm just speculating. I can't remember much about issue was. I just know that from reading it's like, oh, there's that, there's a power, power structure of hierarchies. But the book is fantastic. Is that what the quote about, like, the ri- they're never able to build walls big enough to keep those you have not mm-hmm. from getting through? Is that? Yeah, that's where it comes from. Okay. Um, I thought that this was interesting here. Um, uh, nobody can imagine how nothing could turn into something. Nobody can get an inch near to it by explaining how something can turn into something else. It is really far more logical to start saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, even if you only mean in the beginning, some unthinkable power began some unthinkable process. For God, by its nature and name of mystery, and nobody ever supposed that man could imagine how a world was created by any more than who uh, than he could create it. But evolution really is mistaken for explanation. I mean, I think that's interesting. It has a fatal quality of leaving on many minds the impression that they do understand it and everything else. Just as many of them, there's that them, many of them live under a sort of illusion that they have read original species. But this notion of something smooth and slow, like the ascent of the slope or the great part of the illusion, it is an illogical as well as an illusion, for the slowness has really nothing to do with the question. An event is not any more intrinsically intelligible or unintelligible because of the space or the pace at which it moves. For man does not believe in a miracle, a slow miracle would be just as incredible as a swift one. I mean, that's, that's a pretty, it's a pretty good punch in the nose right there. It, it's funny, too, because the tune has changed a bit. My understanding with neo-Darwinist kind of thinking is that it's actually quite rapid. And Peterson talks about once you get, once you get the sexual selection component running, then that is very rapid because you're sexually selected. You know, it's a mm-hmm. more powerful selective mechanism, which is interesting because that was not taught, discussed as much back then. Back then it was mainly talking about natural <coughs> selection, which is where the slower thing. Anyway, it's kind of interesting. He was almost ahead of his time in terms of where that theory has even gone now. Yeah. In a sense. So time has nothing to do with the, the yeah. miracle. I just, I just feel like he, he cuts... He's very much like him. He cuts so deep when he, when he... He doesn't attempt to say anything he's not willing to back up in, in great detail and length and just let, just let you know that <clears throat> I, I kind of know what I'm talking about here, and so if, if you're going to come at me, you better better bring something more than than a, than a, than a, than a statement or two. I think it's a good challenge <clears throat> to. I was I I wasn't thinking of it so much in terms of you know evolution of man or anything like that, but more or less kind of our day to day expectations of yeah. God's 
involvement in the world order, right, and in lives. And I think part of our problem, our challenge, is that we're so conditioned to thinking of intervention as direct, instantaneous, visible, mm-hmm. lucid, right? You know, it's like if Joel's drinking water and I just come over and knock it out of his hands, right? Like, everybody sees that, you see that, you feel that, you know that that's happening. And yet, we don't really have a great capacity for long-view <laughs> intervention, long-view miracles. And yet, like, mm-hmm. yeah. I think a lot of Christian theology is really built on, like, like, I think about this with my kids. I'm like, man, whatever, whatever God does now in my life, if he's intervening in my life, of course I would love to see the effects yeah. of it. But honestly, like <clears throat> the effects of something that that he involves in his, in my life now may take generations upon generations. It may take a thousand years to play out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and yet that's still intervention. You know, that's still God's participation and involvement in your life. And we want to reduce that down and say, no, it's just. That's coincidence. That's the natural order of things. That's that's other systems, influences, whatever. And it's like, you know, what God did two hundred thousand years ago, right? Still playing out now. Yeah. Yeah. And we should have some trust and faith in that. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? hey, you just I think about that all the time. That's, that is constantly in my brain. Yeah. Like every time I th- I think about my, you know my or anybody else's significance of their actions like it just comes to mind like man, I don't, we don't know this it's like mm-hmm. like this yeah. this one word that we give to someone yeah. that eventually leads to something that radically transforms the human race yeah. if, if one yeah. guy if yeah. one if one semite in the, <laughs> the near east dying on a cross can bring forth the church yeah. goodness gracious i mean when you think about it that when you think about it like that a few dudes and and and, and in a, in a, like a culture that did not make sense to the majority of the world, just all of a sudden go, oh my gosh, God came down and died, and then it just blows up over the next yeah. two thousand yeah. years. That's insane. Yeah, that like that in and of itself is an absolute miracle. Yeah. Um, so- what do we, we call this what chaos theory, right? Where we're like one little thing happens here, yeah. you know, and it's going to trail off. But we don't call that like God's hand, you know, right. or God's intervention or yeah. God's plan. We're like, I I was just writing on this the other day that I was like, honestly, the reason more why we're all probably here today and the way that the world is the way it is at all is because some lady six hundred years ago baked a loaf of bread at 5 o'clock instead of 7 o'clock. Oh. <laughs> and yeah. things happened in those two hours that wouldn't have happened if she yes. baked it at a different period in time. Yes. Like, we all exist because of that. Because yeah. maybe during those two hours she would have had a conversation with somebody that changed the entire world. Yeah. Or, but doesn't that put, you know, doesn't that put an, a, an untenable and un um, reconcilable weight on every second that we have that I don't think so I think it's very freeing you think it's very freeing I think it would be very freeing to know that my action right now could in 500 years cause the death of somebody else well, you can't do anything about it, it might also cause I know it might also cause the life of somebody yeah, else yeah. you know I, I mean, my, the, the weird, yeah. but I think the it's, weird <clears throat> thing is like my grandfather was in World War II right and 
the guy next to him was killed, right? That changed history forever. Yeah. My grandfather was not killed. And if my grandfather had been killed, we wouldn't be here. Exactly. You know? Mm-hmm. We'd be all sitting here. <laughs> it's like... Yeah. And, and, like, this is, like, uh, I'm sure some of y'all have seen the, the, the shows in the series, but the, they do an interesting job of, of reiterating something that is talked about in a lot of sermons on the uh, woman at the well. And, like, the background there, why was she coming at midday? Yeah. Culturally speaking, she's coming at midday. It means that she's an outcast. And obviously, after he tells her of all about, you know, you have this wife. Well, yeah, she's definitely an outcast. And it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. If, if that woman hadn't been an outcast, and she hadn't shown up at the well at that time, we would not have had such a powerful story that broke down the cultural barriers of the time and effectively paved the way for... Uh, for, for racial uh, race reconciliation mm-hmm. and, and and cultural reconciliation across mm-hmm. all time, like that, like that statement uh, is like one of was one of the biggest abolitionist things in in terms of the loss of the straight slave trade. And other things. Yeah. Just that understanding, that one woman's pain changed so much of the world, and like it's just just a beautiful picture of like how pain even like absolute misery. And yeah. being an outcast can end up becoming so so yeah. glorious. Be worthy of your sufferings. Yeah. So Hitchens has an argument that uh, he asked William Lane Craig, "Why did God wait so long to come? He waited, you know, four thousand years waiting to come. That's that's why did he wait so long? He could have come sooner and could have saved yeah. all these lives." And then William Lane Craig says, "Well, if the Earth lasts another ten thousand years, he actually came quite quickly." You know, depending on depending on the future, we don't know the future, so it might be depending on how long we yeah. we last. He could have come in a split second, as soon as you know, in in respect to time. Yeah. So the time element is is uh, is so subjective and, and relative that uh, it's an interesting argument to, to bring up. That's what Chesterton is talking about: there, the relativity of time um, doesn't doesn't matter. Yeah, I just want to talk about the way that we think about ancient people and what your view is, everybody's perspective is on that because it seems like in general the moderns and even postmoderns don't have much respect for the ancients like teenagers thinking they know better than their parents and like you read something like Marco Polo and say well he didn't really do that you know he must be exaggerating or it just it's strange to me like because he was there and we weren't that we would assume that, that we know better mm-hmm. and like with the the art thing when i look when i think about it, it's like yeah that's a really simplistic drawing but i don't think i could have gotten that idea across of dinosaur or whatever it was they were drawing thousands of years mm-hmm. you know if i'd written the word they wouldn't know what <laughs> so they're I don't know if they were trying to communicate with people in the far future, but um, I just wonder why do we think the alphabet is superior to pictures, or why do we think we just naturally seem to think that we know better? Evolved from pictograph, anyways. Yeah, I. I, I We don't even know, like he's saying in the book, we don't even know why they're in the cave. The cave may have been, you know. Religious uh, gathering place. It could have been a secret. Uh, it could have been a, a, a den for you know, children, a safe place. It, we assume the man lived in the cave. Such things like that. I 
interesting. Hmm. Which interestingly, later archaeology, after he was gone, told us that they probably didn't live in the cave. Yeah. And it was like, it was it's funny because like the whole the whole like the idea of a caveman has been completely flipped on its head. Right. Like that's now most most you know most anthropologists are like. That's almost certainly not what God happened. Place, like they Robert. just, yeah, they would go in there and do stuff, yeah. and they come out. Well, we we take we take yeah. we take information, and we find we put it in we categorize it correctly, and then we we create behaviors out of this information, and if it works out to create flourishing and mitigate suffering, we call that knowledge. And if that knowledge over time proves to be more beneficial, more optimal than not, then we would call that wisdom over time, right? And so what, what we hand down to our children is wisdom upon wisdom upon wisdom. And so when they see the world, they're like, oh, look at these idiots you know, smoking cigarettes back in the 40s and 50s. And doctors saying, hey, it really helps your breathing and it, you know, it really soothes your throat and stuff. And you go, they're idiots. And you're like, that was cutting edge science at the time, right? Every generation is on the cutting edge all the time. Yeah. And so every generation thinks they're that because it's, it's progress. But here's the thing that, that we have now in postmodernism that it, it, could, it could be the same across time, but it seems to be a little, more, a little different now. And I think they view philosophy like technology. Every new version makes the other version obsolete, okay? But philosophy's not like that. Because here's the thing, in the Old Testament, the idea of sacrifice, the idea of God, we haven't been able to do any better. In 6,000 years, we haven't been able to do any better than sacrifice, love, God. Like, we can't do any better than those things. And so there must be something there that those are transcendent archetypal truths that, that are true across time. And so you have to have those things because it ties us back to them. We, have, we still have art. We still are... So could it be that this, the caveman, like Leaf, was possessed by the idea to draw this thing, and it was the only thing that was left, you know? Like, this is the Leaf in the museum. This, this drawing is, maybe there were, great, there were great drawings that he had. Maybe there were, there were, you know, murals and things, but all that was left was this one thing to indicate that intelligent man had been here. Not that cavemen, but an intelligent man have been here. Part of our problem is that we get these little snapshots and we reduce an, an entire society or an entire life down to this little snapshot. Yeah. Yeah, this is what it is. And I think the reality is, like, you know, people look back on us in a thousand years and all they yeah. see is social yeah. media and TikTok mm -hmm. videos and, you yeah. know, yeah. some skyscrapers and stuff like that. We're going to look pretty dumb, too. It really looks like our, our ignorance idiots. is overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's what I like about this first chapter is he's just dealing with a lot of, like, hubristic yeah. analysis of the past, yeah. which is, again, very Lewisian, Tolkien, Tolkienian, right, in that it's just this, like, idea of chronological snobbery, right, to use his term of, like, well, we got it all figured out, you know, and everybody yeah. before us was dumb, you know. Well, modernism like, was the same as... Uh, and the reality is, like, honestly, you want to talk about intelligence and dumb like most people can't read anything like this exactly. <laughs> because it's too hard exactly. I've considered that before but if you're practically going to go look for things of ancient man a cave is actually the most ideal place to look because if you want things to last a long time thousands of years yeah. preservation but also ease of finding the evidence mm -hmm. because even if it's preserved in sediment it, I mean the amount of 
because obviously things can get preserved, but over geologic time periods, they're shifted around. You have to sift through a whole hill just to find. I mean, he talks about this in the yeah. sifting through a hill to find a jawbone, and it's a hundred feet from you know this other bone or whatever. I mean, it's easier for moderns to look for it in the cave, but then we'd be wrong to infer that that's then where they spent all their time. And he talks about that with our iron. You know, like yeah. imagine only our iron survives, and they assume we wore you know clothes of iron and such, like just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, and to your point, what's about the, the philosophy? Like, yeah, what like in in my media ethics class, we talk about a lot of philosophies, and and the, the one that most people land on, and it's, I don't think it's because it's uh, uh, a Judeo-Christian concept. They always land on loving your neighbor as yourself as being the, usually the one that they most often go to when they're handling ethical questions, and. And I and I, like it's funny too because I'll, I'll I'll bring up I'm like all right so when was this said who said this I'm like well Jesus nope <laughs> Leviticus yeah but also ancient Greece ancient Egypt ancient China like in like yes. universal yes. ancient cultures all had this idea that if we love others the way we wish to be loved it is the best possible <clears throat> evidence and mm. so far like we just really have as far as just a general ethic for the for a living, it's mm-hmm. still it's ten thousand years old, and we still have not been able to beat it. But like what uh, it reminds me of Churchill saying uh, that uh, that capitalism is is the worst, uh, you know, capitalism and, and uh, Western democracy is the worst form of government in the world, except for all the other ones. Yeah, you know, and you, you think about that in a similar. Like we we can't be able to. Maybe maybe we can't. Maybe this is this maybe is the best that we can do. Is loving your neighbors yourself, um, and I would point out too that only surviving, thriving cultures use that. Other mm. cultures who didn't use that did not survive and did not thrive. So that is, that is um, yeah, I would think that's probably true. I haven't looked at all of them, but yeah, it's probably. True. Well, I mean, look. So what? What is? I was talking to the kids about this. What is one? There is one uh, key ethic in the mob. So if you go to go to the mobs and thieves, what is one thing that they honor above all things? <coughs> Bad relationship. Truth. Right? You, you don't want you don't the mob boss, his right hand man has to speak the truth to him. If he doesn't, like the, there there has to be truth in in that. Right? Truth is a premium. No. Loyalty. Huh? I'd say loyalty. I was, I was what you think? You think loyalty more family. than truth? Yeah, I was thinking the collective, like well, a little truth to collective not as well. Loyalty, I guess. The truth, yeah, like yeah. Yeah, yeah that's an interesting kind of idea. Truth coming out of loyalty. But but kind of like a lower, I mean, like a, like a like a lowercase t kind of truth, like a, a collective mythology to unite. But if you cross them, well, it, are you saying that it, a truth in the sense that it is true, or a truth in the sense well, that it's a unifying thing. idea? If if I say to you that I'm going to keep my word, but I don't keep my word. And then a bunch of people die. But we call that loyalty, right? Well, you, I, I guess yeah. I guess we're probably you know nuancing this thing here. But yes, yeah, but yeah. So, but the, I have to know. I have to know that you're that you're trustworthy. That your word is your word. And if not, then you know I put a bullet in your head and promote the next person on up because I have to know that the secrets here are safe. So, um, but then the whole thing is the truth is so. Uh, who said this? Uh, I think it was, was it Churchill said the truth is so profound it has to be hidden and uh, uh, among among a, uh, an army of lies. It's so it's, it's so. Um, I forget the word. It's so 
profound. It has to be hidden in one specialized. Anyway, I think I've taken this off track. It's a great rabbit trail. I like it. Yeah. We're saying the, the same thing, just using different, <clears throat> different right. definitions of different words. Yes. Same definition of different words. Yeah, I, th I think we're I think we're all hitting around the same thing. So, uh, what's the time? 8.07. 8.07, so we're getting close to the... Um, are you guys you guys enjoying this? Challenging? Um, for how many is, is the language a problem? Fair enough. Language a problem? What? Language? I hate myself. Passionately. <laughs> when you read something like you, you realize, like, I I don't know if I could, I could probably never write anything like, like that. That's just... That's just and that actually is one thing that does frustrate me is we write books that are so subpar to this kind of stuff now and it's like you used to have to be able to say something and say it in a certain kind of way in order to be in order to have the platform yeah and now we don't have that you know so nobody actually needs to learn rhetoric or argumentation or even words okay know. but just position that with with i'm just going to use me i want a seat at the table too Right. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So we're all we're all here at the table. That brings us the joy of fellowship. I get to learn, you get to impart. Aren't we both happy? Right? Sure. So you need me just as much as I need you. Okay? I, I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying. I'm yeah. just saying let's make more room at the table. No, I think not, the table I think the table should be down. No, I think the table should be very big. I'm talking about in terms of an authoritative like teaching position, right? Like in terms of you know, the disciples sat under Jesus for a long while before they even put pen to paper and said, hey, let us take the leadership roles, you know. So for Chesterton to be in this position and yeah. for, for people to be in a people position, I'm just saying we don't have that so much in our culture anymore where a lot of that is, you know, it's self-promotion rather than, oof, okay. you know. Like, I, I listen to me, I have something to say. I've lived for two, well, 10 minutes, and I, I get this thing all figured yeah. out. Here's, here's my book, and you go, oh, no, I don't. And, you know, in, in 20 minutes, you might change your mind on some of this. <laughs> Sorry, none of this makes sense. Well, I have been drinking Randy's coffee for a while, so I think I'm the best authority on coffee in this room now. So. Mm -hmm. Right. Apparently. Sweat, see, like folders. <laughs> oh. Sorry. Oh, that's <laughs> I can clean it up, man. Put the shelves over here. <laughs> I was looking at your clips today, and I was like, we should write profound thoughts and clip them. Wes likes folders should be number one. Ooh, going yeah. Up there, right? I, I, did, I did trick a bunch of uh, young hipsters. Um, they were doing a photo shoot on, on, on my, my property, and I made some folders with distilled water and took down to them. They're like, this coffee is fantastic. What is this? Like, Folgers. They're like, no. And I, I would say I haven't drank Folgers in about I don't know twelve years. We we drink much more refined coffees now. But um, I grew up with Folgers and Maxwell's. And refined coffees, I mean, like there's an Oxford blend here. It's very good. Cambridge is it's, it's a little little less. Oh, well. Here at Drinklings. Here at Drinklings. <laughs> Drinklings, the Oxford <laughs> is the best. It's superior to any other coffee. Huh? Buy one bag for $11.99 a day at drinklings.coffee. <laughs> Wholesale, you can get it delivered right to your house. I don't know if that's true. Curbside, take that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
All right, now, I think what Randy's uh, also, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you're talking about if we, so this is the abolition of man thing, if we, if we teach people how to read and write, then we're going to get more of this kind of thing. But you can't, it's almost like, uh, this, is, this is a very poor example that someone's popping to my, my brain right now. If you're going to be a Catholic priest and you're studying the scholastics version, you actually don't get the scriptures, at least used to be, like, a, like in medieval times, you didn't even touch the scriptures until you had read years and years in commentary upon commentary upon commentary of the scriptures. It wasn't until you actually came a certain level of priest that you actually got to read the scriptures themselves. Um, you had to master the rhetoric around them and the ideas around them um, from all different it's angles. Kind of and, um, and so that's, that's what they're supposed to teach in school is, is, is the, the, you know, the rhetoric learning. You, know, you, you learn rhetoric, uh, you go to grammar school, you, you, learn, you learn to memorize, you learn the information because if you don't have the information, how are you going to, when you get to, how are you going to, to analyze? How are you going to know what to use? If you don't know, if you don't have St. George and a Dragon, when you see it, what are you going to label it as? You're not going to know how to categorize things unless you've seen them before, unless you, you've mastered that before. So we need to master the tools that these guys are presenting us um, and learn from them and, and uh, become, yeah. become better. I don't, I don't think that, because I think, I think you look at Lewis, like I, I don't agree with Tolkien's criticism, for example, that he was... Um, that he shouldn't have been able to write on theology because he wasn't a theologian or a right. priest or something like that. So I think as much as Lewis will would agree in general with that, because he does say it, he says, don't write about things, don't speak about things that you don't know what you're talking about, you know, and that's part of the problem in our culture is that mm -hmm. we've got a whole lot of people that are, you're writing a book about grammar, but you're really writing about philosophy, you know? It's yeah. like, that's, you know. But there is this, I think it. I think it's a, it is a big criticism of our priorities in our educational systems and our social systems in how we go about learning and what the purpose of learning is mm. and even what the purpose of speaking in education is, mm -hmm. teaching is. Which is why if you want a better education, you should go to Asbury University. <laughs> go to asburyuniversity.edu for more information today. There's a great media conference. Slash. Is that why you were doing that to me last week with the, uh, when was I was I talking about, you know. Oh, yeah, yes, how, how yes, that was it. Yeah, you were basically endorsing a, li a liberal arts education. <laughs> oh, which is, okay. Which is like kind of, not the same as Randy's talking about, but, but uh, yeah. No, I, I'm 100% on board with what you're saying, man. Absolutely. Yeah. And I also think that that ties into, I'm preaching in the choir here. But we tie all that into uh, Imagineering, and here is, I cannot believe you did not read this quote. I was about to bet Randy 10 bucks that you would read this quote within the first 15 minutes, but you didn't, and you kind of breaking my heart. You can, still pay me, you can still pay me 10 bucks. <laughs> so here it is. Uh, he's talking about... He's talking about the giant and everything, and he says, Or if we cannot do that, we must at least try to shake off the cloud of mere custom and see the thing as new, mm -hmm. if only by seeing it as unnatural. 
things that may well be familiar, so long as familiarity breeds affection, had, that had much better become unfamiliar when familiarity breeds contempt. For in connection with things so great as are here considered, whatever our view of them, the concept must, uh, uh, contempt must be a mistake. Indeed, contempt must be an illusion. We must invoke the most wild and soaring sort of imagination, yeah. the imagination that can see what is there. Um, and I think that's kind of like the, the, the stepping out that he's talking about, stepping away from the giant, looking yep. at it from the perspective of, of someone outside uh, yeah. of the problem, outside of the thing itself. And that kind of thinking is, is not something that's, that's often taught anymore. It's just very rarely is it taught anymore. And um, like I had to, I never was taught that in school. I'd learned that from my, fam my parents um, and books. Like and like, reading Lewis. It's that's that's how I learned. It. So it's like that's just not taught. Mm -hmm. That the idea of removing yourself from the issue, yeah. stepping back, imagining something different, imagining a different perspective. Mm -hmm. I will say that in certain settings it is getting better, but it's limited. Like we're limiting it to you know imagining another person's perspective if from like a different class or racial structure. Like that's that's being preached a lot, but it's not being preached on like just the general level of like the problem itself or at, as he says uh, uh, here as in here such great things are considered so the thing really yeah I just heard that on, on uh, I was listening to it uh, and that came up I didn't have time to uh, I was like yes that's amazing but <laughs> I didn't have time yeah. to get it yeah so that I think that's extremely important and he talks about um, St. George not riding on the horse, he comes riding on the dragon, right? And so, I've, I've talked about Lewis, says maybe we'll still pass the watchful dragons. Now, you can slay the dragon, or you can tame the dragon. If you tame the dragon, and you're riding on the dragon, suddenly you have some, you have some possibilities you didn't have before, that you can go places you can fly off to Paralandra, you can fly off to Malachandra, you can, you can go some places if you can tame the dragon in there. And I think that's, but it's only done through reason and imagination. You can only do that with the, you call it imagineering? I thought imagineering, that's the Disney term. That's, um, <laughs> that's the Disney term, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's, that's really good. Getting a co-op in there. Um, yeah, so, uh, great introduction, I think, here. We're going to continue on, just uh, <coughs> pull out your favorite quotes, bring them, uh, we'll wrestle out the... Uh, What's your recommended, what, what are you hoping people get through before we meet again? How much content to cover? All of it. I, 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 I don't like to put the kind of limitations because that's, uh, get with through what you can. If you read one page and it's impactful to you, and you you, you like you basically highlight the whole page, and mm. you come through and you have something burning on your, that's to me is okay. worth more than five hundred pages in, in a day. He's a hard read too. He's a very hard so, read, and so I don't, I don't think this is a fast book. No, this is this is not going to be a, a a fast read. And just to talking about Randy though, the butterfly wings, and I'll probably wrap it up with this. Um, I grew up in a church where King James Version Bible was the only, it was the word of God. You, you, you couldn't read NIV, you know, you sinner, you heretic <laughs> NIV. Um, and so 
But I did. Huh? How did they feel about Greek? No. Greek? No one, no one knew about Greek. It'd be burned to the stake, you know. Point A, Greek. Um, so, I, I wondered so long why, you know, what impact that would have. But what it allowed me to do was, when I got a hold of Shakespeare, I had zero problem understanding Shakespeare. I had zero problem understanding, like, I, I, I went to college and it was like, wait, I, don't, oh, I get all this stuff. This is not hard. This is, and people are like pulling their hair out and freaking out. It's like, oh, yeah, I spent, you know, 20 years in this church, you know, reading King James over and over and over again. I've got the context. I've got the flow. I've got the cadence. I know where they're going. It's like, this is awesome. Um, so that was one of the, the things that I didn't know was going to pay dividends um, in the future. But, but by me understanding that, it also gave me a higher language uh, with my own thinking as well. So you never know when those frustrations in your life become blessings. So, all right, yeah, get through what you can, highlight, bring some thoughts. Um, we'll wrestle through them. There's a lot here. I'm telling you, um, this guy is brilliant. And the reason why I brought up the Sherlock Holmes thing, and I'm going I'm to put context to this. You guys ready? <laughs> We're doing shots for sure. Yeah. And Peterson. We're Doyle all, said. We're all drunk. <laughs> we're all hammered. <laughs> <We're all laughs> Doyle said that Chesterton is saturated with Sherlock Holmes. Not only were they peers, but they were friends. And he says that Chesterton's work is saturated with Sherlock Holmes quotes all throughout and, and, and philosophies and ideas. Well, yeah, that's his own detective. He created his own detective, yeah. So um, that's why I brought that vital and incidental up because I think that he was extremely influenced by Doyle. Is this so that everyone will, will read Sherlock Holmes next time you bring it up? No, it's, 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 it's a part of my thesis. It's a part of my thesis. I tried. Um, so. Are you the naysayer? Everybody was the naysayer. No. I, I am so disappointed. I dare say everyone. Tim Sherlock. We had a couple of Tim Sherlock, but not many. Mm. Well, we should revote. I was on Tim Sherlock. Sorry. All right, so next week, bring... Uh, Bring your heresies and your and your and your uh, passions, and we'll wrestle through it. Further up. Further in. <laughs>